Hello this is Arun the co-producer and narrator of the podcast you're just about to listen to Thanks so much for choosing to listen to our podcast This podcast is made with immersive audio so get your headphones out and connect it to your device or if you're listening to it on a great home stereo with a bluetooth connection or home theater system or in the comfort of your car for that amazing immersive audio experience we hope you like it This is a Scrap Studio production and we at Scraps are an organization whose primary focus is to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists and innovation as a service to the world. We take pride in bringing you the stories of people in science and history of science. If you like this series, please do search for our other podcasts from Scrap Studio. The podcast is titled Scraps with a K. It's S K R A P S, which is an interview-based podcast series focusing on many topics with expert scientists and innovators on a variety of topics like biomedical engineering, cardiac biology, medtech, climate change, psychopathy, human composting, material science, artificial intelligence, venture capital, and many more. We don't just talk about the subjects. we talk about the stories of the very scientists who work on these areas if you like our work please share it with your friends family and acquaintances and please talk about it over coffee drinks and on vacation this is the best help that you can provide us we believe that nothing is 100% good or 100% bad we never say always and we never say never While the 10 episodes of Psychedelics have primarily focused on the history and the potential of psychedelic medicines to improve humankind, we recognize that there are definite risks associated with this family of drugs. As we learned in the PTSD episode, there are populations for whom psychedelics, either recreationally or therapeutically, are downright dangerous and the results can be dire. Because little is known about the how or the why, We found someone who is brave enough to share with us a very personal story. Dr. Erica Ross is no stranger to science. She has a master's degree in molecular biology and a PhD in biomedical sciences and the neurobiology of disease. Before moving to industry, she was an assistant professor of neurological surgery at Mayo Clinic. If you're guessing that she's no slouch, you've nailed it. Luckily for me, she is also a friend. I have known Erica for many years, but it wasn't until we started this series that she told me the story of her little brother Craig. It's ridiculous for me to even attempt to do their story justice. This one can only be told in her words, and we're so very grateful for her candor. This one's for you, Craig. I'm Erica Ross. So I and I don't know this story. I don't I don't even really know much about this story at all. So yeah, you- I have Yeah. Um so my brother my brother Craig So there's three of us. So there's my youngest brother Kurt who you've heard a lot about, but my middle brother Craig um he's born 2 years after me and had like a pretty awesome childhood with the other two of us. Uh 
Um, we all grew up in Colorado, kind of free for all. We had we 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 grew up in a learn or die uh, household where it was a lot of nature around and a lot of opportunities to go explore and <laughs> learn or die or hurt yourself in some interesting way. But but we kind of we kind of. I don't know. We grew up that way. It was good. Good for 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 us. He went on pre athletic kid, um, pretty intelligent kid. Did international baccalaureate. Um, graduated like top 10 in his class in high school. And then he went off to college. He got into some really good schools, but was also kind of socially inept, kind of like me, um, more so more introverted than me. (laughs) And he, he, um, yeah, he decided to go to this school, uh, called Western state with his couple of his close friends. So it was in Durango, Colorado. Um, and when he was there, he got, into drugs he started kind of trying everything like i think a lot of people do in college but um he that became a lot of his identity so he went from being like this healthy extremely healthy athletic like smart kid like really smart kid um to to having friends and kind of getting invested in this as a as what he spent his time on and um, there was one, one day he came, he came home from college, um, to my mom's house and he showed up and he, uh, he, he was like, there's people in the yard. They've been chasing me. I, I, I don't know like where to go. Like I have to be here to protect you, mom. And she was like, mm, I don't really know how to deal with all of this right now. This is, seems like we need a, a, some medical help with this. And so she took him to the hospital and found out that he had done a bunch of LSD and he um, had been awake for a week straight and that he, through this event and through some genetics, had triggered... Um, he, he became schizophrenic. So my brother was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic at this point. He's um, 18 years old. And so so from there we, we had a it, it was kind of like, all right, this is uh, this is this is this is different. you kind of you kind of lose a sibling at that point because everything is different. Initially it was like, okay, He's, he has a he has a disorder. Like we'll live with it. We'll figure out how to how to hang out with him. Still, he's still our our middle brother. He's still awesome. Still super smart. Still very funny. Still very protective of us. Um, and you slowly realize that at that point everything changes and that they're a completely different person. Like the the memories are still there and they flash back occasionally, but their reality shifts and what is going on from your perception is completely different than what's going on from, from theirs. So had he, had he shown any signs of paranoid schizophrenia before leaving for college or growing up? There's no, no, nothing. He was a pretty normal kid, pretty quiet. 
a little subdued, kind of goofy, kind of weird, but that's us and our family in general. <laughs> so it, there was nothing that was that was something that needed to be medicated or something to be aware of or something my parents were like, mm, there were signs early on. It was, um, we found out later that, that there is a genetic predisposition and we do have history a couple generations back of serious mental health. We don't know what it was, but we know that there was serious mental health issues. Um, and it was, it was unexpected. It was a twist. So from there, Craig, Craig dropped out of college, um, came home to live with my mom. Um, there, there was one day where he was, he was at home, um, without her and she came home and he greeted her with a knife and said, um, you're, you're a vampire and you ha you have, uh, vampire veins or something like this. Like really just his reality had completely shifted. And she was like, you know, this doesn't feel super safe now. And we did some research and realized like adult kids with mental illness like this, um, it happened. People, people will die at the hands of their, their, um, their kid who has a serious mental illness like that. And so they, they put him in a, a assisted living facility and actually it wasn't that simple. <laughs> we had, we had, um, it was in and out of, let's see. So there was a, a period of t back up a little bit more. So there was a period of time where, so my mom kicked him out at that point. We got, they got him a place to live, like an apartment. And he, he lived there for a while, but he was going in and out of jail and in and out of hospitals a lot. So there was one, one apartment he rented and they, they, the like per person who managed the building, um, there were, he was playing music too loud and, um, they finally opened the door cause he wouldn't, he wouldn't open it. And he was standing on his bed and he was yelling, had a bat and was yelling that he was the King of Scotland and tried, took a swing at this guy. And so he went to jail because that's what our society does. We send people with mental illness to jail and then make, make, uh, make, make our, our police force also be mental health caregivers. So he, he was on, I can't even count how many 72 hour holds, um, in and out of, um, in and out of hospitals in and out of jail a lot. So it was, it was stressful for everybody. Um, he eventually did go into an assisted living facility, uh, when he was 25 years old, 24, 25. And, uh, he did a little bit better there for a while, um, but he still, they, they at least regulated his meds because that's the other thing about folks with schizophrenia. They hate their medications because it's not fun and it takes away it, the, the complaint we heard all the time is like, I just, I don't feel like myself. I'm not myself. So he, he just stopped taking it. And they, um, <laughs> He, he, he went off of it for a while, went on a total bender. They couldn't find him. Um, and then eventually, when he's 26 years old, they found him dead in a park. Mm -hmm. 
and he had he had drank himself to death and he was there for three days before anybody found him so it was uh it was traumatic and it was sad and it, and his brain broke and his reality changed and really everything changed like we mourned we had to mourn him twice kind of through this so it was um yeah it was not not an easy experience for for any of us and was he especially during during the periods before he went into the assisted living facility i'm assuming he was on and off of all sorts of things or did he have a proclivity just for speed or psychedelics or anything yeah psychedelics he did mushrooms he did lsd when he could get his hands on it um smoke some pot but um alcohol was the most accessible thing so he he did that smoke cigarettes like crazy but that is allegedly um good for for folks with schizophrenia to be to kind of be more normalizing um yeah so kind of what he whatever he could get his hands on he would he would get his hands on there was um there was another instance like, d- during that time after he had been diagnosed where he he had he had done something we still don't know what it was and he drove on the major highway and caught between Colorado Springs and kind of south which is I-25 and he got in a really horrible car accident he he was thrown he wasn't wearing a seatbelt he was thrown from his car he broke uh, his neck he broke uh, bones in both legs his arm fractured like three or four ribs um just this really horrible accident and all we could think then was thank god you didn't hurt anybody else it it was just it was unbelievable the only reason he survived was because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt and so after this accident he um and so he was thrown from the car which like the car itself was un it was just, yeah, it was, it was pretty traumatic. Um, and so he was in the ICU for a pretty long time. And after that, it just got worse. Like he, he was in pain and he was suffering and his reality was different than everybody else's. And he didn't understand why he didn't have autonomy. And it's it just his whole existence was, was, uh, was, different than what he he thought his life would be or what he felt like was happening in in the world around him I don't I don't know anything really about schizophrenia I'm not familiar with it but are there moments of lucidity like there are with Alzheimer's where mm-hmm. your person comes back and they're exactly yeah. who they used to be? Yeah, absolutely. We, he would come back and he would have these very extremely clear memories of our childhood together. And he would say, remember when like, Kurt fell out of this tree or remember when like, these friends were over and we did this. And you're like, man, I haven't thought about that or I barely remember that. How do you remember that so clearly? And underneath it all, he was still the same sweet, incredibly sweet brother who would do anything for his family and would protect us. Like he had nothing and he was always trying to use what he had to, to 
take care of us because that's that's what he felt he needed to do in in this life and so that was extremely difficult but yes they not a lot of people know a lot about schizophrenia um it's a it's a really tough disorder and it's why one of the reasons why it gets there's not a lot of people who know what to do with it when they see it and why a lot of people with it end up in jail a lot or homeless because there's no support system. Um, I, I said he went to this, this, um, this, this, um, this facility that he ended up in this, um, great, great assisted living facility, but it took my mom probably a year to find him a bed in, in a place like that. And she had to fight tooth and nail for that to happen just because there is an infrastructure and there's nowhere to put people and um, people don't know what to do with this disorder and many others. So we, we put them in, in jail and in long-term care facilities. Do you think, because this all sort of happened when he was away at school, so he wasn't at home, he wasn't, you know, with you guys on a day-to-day basis. Do you have an instinct for, did one thing trigger the other? Did the schizophrenia trigger the drug use or did the drug use trigger the schizophrenia or is it just a happenstance of timing, do you think? it's So it's pretty common actually for, Um, So the way schizophrenia works, no one is really born with schizophrenia. You you kind of develop and at some point people become schizophrenic. Um, For for men, it's a little bit younger. It's in the 21-year range. And and for um, women, it's a little bit older. So it tends to be in kind of the 30-year range, um, 30-year-olds old range. But a lot of times what they see, we still don't know a lot about schizophrenia. <laughs> we don't know a lot about how to treat it well. Um, the drugs that they give these folks are really horrible. Um, and they're not very specific to the disorder because we still, it's just a lot of circuit dysfunction all over the place. And we just don't know yet what causes it. But we do know that there is a genetic component. So people with, with, um, with any sort of serious mental illness in their family history shouldn't touch LSD or, or any other psychedelic just because there is a much higher risk that they can, they can experience something like this, which is, is not the goal <laughs> kind of opposite the goal, I think for a lot of people. Yeah, um, no, it, the, the two guys that we had on from heroic hearts, they facilitate ayahuasca um, retreats for veterans with PTSD. And that's one, that's part of their screening process for exactly that reason is that they, it's not just first person history of mental illness. They go back and look at familial history of mental illness because they, they don't know what or why, but they do know that, that it's not just not going to help them. It's has a huge potential for harm. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, I, I mean, Fortunately, we know enough to to have them excluded from the program, but it's unfortunate that they can't benefit from that. So that's and that's the responsible way to do it. I think that sounds yeah, I think that's the responsible way to do it. 
I've never heard you talk about it. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can only imagine how hard it must have been to keep your life together while, while you're watching him do this and you're pursuing your education and your career, which is intense just on its own. Two brothers and a mom and a dad to manage too. Yeah, it was, it was not easy. And he's had, I mean, he's had a lot of really positive impacts on my, on my career because of what I've, what I've seen him go through. Like if, if I can do anything in this lifetime, it's to make better treatments for people who are experiencing chronic health issues and try to bring more awareness to, to the mental health community because we, after experiencing it firsthand and seeing how little support exists in the United States for folks who have any sort of mental health issue, there's just, it's rough and it, and it's something we don't talk enough about. And it's just, yeah, there's been a lot of, there were a lot of times he, when he became schizophrenic, I was, or I was still thinking I was going to be a, a doctor and an, excuse me, an MD. And so I was still pre-med and that was a pivotal point for me where I started getting super interested in neuroscience, trying to figure out what was going on with his brain and realizing how little we knew about schizophrenia and then realizing how little we knew about pretty much every other neurological disorder and recognizing that that could be an opportunity for me to make an impact. And so that was a big, a big pivotal point. The second point when he died, I was, my plan was to go on and get my MBA and move up to the point in something where I would, where I could, could be an executive. But instead I was, was pushed to kind of stick, stick around, um, stay in science and try to get super hands-on in developing new therapies for people. And I love it. So, so because of him and because of these horrible, painful experiences, I've had these major pivots in where I've focused and he's had that impact on my life. He has no idea or would have had no idea, but um, I think similarly for my little brother, they, he, he's, my little brother is what I describe as the perfect millennial. That kid has figured out a way to, to uh, do everything that, is stuff that he thinks um, is interesting in this world. So he's a mountaineer. He spends his time climbing these amazing mountains and, and doing like first ascents on stuff. And then in his, in the time that he's not doing that, he, he develops new content for different companies and he had his own company up until very recently, just doing this a couple months a year and supporting himself. So I think for both of us, we've, we recognize how important it is to have an impact and how important it is to also enjoy the life that we have because you see somebody go through that and suffer through that and you suffer with them because you know them so well and you, yeah, you, you, you develop a a different perspective. Your scale of big deals changes. Do you and your brother ever, ever talk about Craig or is it? We do. Yeah, we do. We, we, um, he died five years ago, uh, this year 
and we had a really good heart to heart about it. And it was just, it was interesting to hear his take on it. And um, I think we both miss him a lot and both kind of feel like he's still kind of with us, kind of watching over us. So he's a, Yeah, so, um, yeah, we talk about him. We miss him. But at the end of the day, he's in a better place. We, this, this world isn't built for <laughs> folks who, who believe they're the king of Scotland and try to be aggressive with people who have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so, so that's, um, he's definitely in a better place. I'm so sorry. I mean, we're grateful for the time that we had with him and for the experience that we, the painful experience that we had during that time with him. Just to get that perspective, it changes everything. It changes everything when you see that, when you see somebody experience all of that. Well, thank you for telling his story. Thank you for giving me the opportunity.